Thanks for listening to The First Take, First Word Farmers' weekly podcast where we take a closer look at the most important industry news over the past seven days. In this episode, we discuss new safety requirements from the FDA for various jack inhibitors and the potential implications of this for the drug class. We look at how Boehringer Ingelheim and Eli Lilly's Jardiants stole the show at last weekend's European Society of Cardiology Congress with impressive new heart failure data. And we break down the ongoing controversy around COVID-19 vaccine booster shots. Having first announced its intention to do so in February, the FDA this week issued new guidance about the safety of three JAK inhibitors approved to treat rheumatoid arthritis, Pfizer's Zelgantz, AbbVie's Rinbok and Eli Lilly's Illumiant. The agency said it will require revisions to the boxed warnings on all three drugs. And this comes after the FDA wrapped up its review of a large safety trial involving Zelgantz concluding that there is an increased risk of serious heart-related events such as heart attack or stroke, cancer, blood clots and death. Furthermore, in a bid to ensure that the benefits of these three medicines outweigh their risks, the FDA is also limiting all approved uses of the drugs to certain patients who have not responded or cannot tolerate one of the TNF blockers. So Michael, in terms of the potential scenarios that could have played out, Where do these recommendations from the FDA sit and what could the potential impact be on the drug class? Yeah, it sounds like it's somewhere in the middle, which is not surprising, I suppose. Um, You know, obviously the most draconian measure would have been to pull Zeljans from the market um, and, you know, perhaps not approve new jacks and all this sort of thing. It sounds like that's probably not the way FDA is going. The the other option, the other far end of the spectrum would have been to do nothing, which also would have been pretty surprising given that the data is pretty clear that Zelljans, um, you know, has these um, untoward effects. So it sounds like FDA came down somewhere in the middle, maybe a little bit more conservative than some people, some sort of street watchers, analysts were expecting. Um, in mandating that they have that basically they have to be used after a TNF failure. So, you know, that that will obviously have an impact on the future sort of trajectory of this entire class. Um, because the question, I guess the real question was going to be whether it was just going to be a Zeljans issue, because it was clearly going to be an issue, or whether it was going to be the rest of the class. And, and FDA was pretty clear. They think it's there's just not enough evidence out there to differentiate these other JAK inhibitors, the more specific JAK inhibitors from Zelljans. And so they're just all being thrown in the, the same bucket. And uh, so, you know, the, the hardest hit company is going to be AbbVie. They, you know, their, their share price uh, took a real hit on the news. I think $16 billion just over that was shaved off their market cap, which is sort of indicative of what um, the kind of sales impact the street is expecting from this more stringent uh, label. Um, and then, you know, abracitinib. So Pfizer will be impacted by Zelljans, obviously, but, you know, I think sales of that has already been hit. You know, Pfizer has this next generation, more selective uh, jack inhibitor that they are hoping was going to compete with Renvoke 
the basically the the one that's seen as best in class from AbbVie, and that's why AbbVie stock was was hit so hard. But Pfizer has this next generation abrocitinib that's coming through as well, and and you know that will obviously, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a problem for that as well. And so there's a lot of angles here. So we're sort of you you initially talk about rheumatoid arthritis because that's where you know Zeljans was being tested in this oral surveillance. Um, long-term post-marketing study, and that's where the, the safety issues cropped up. But these JAK inhibitors are being used or hoped to be used across a wide variety of indications. And I think the one that a lot of people are really look, looking towards and sort of thinking about how, you know, how is this going to affect it is in atopic dermatitis because, you know, this is a, a giant market that right now is being sort of dominated by Dupixent. From Regeneron and Snofi, you know, the JAK inhibitors have shown in several of them, Abercitinib, Rinvoke especially, they've had phase three trials where they've gone head to head with Dupixin and they've shown that they are more effective. So, you know, this is a, you know, a big, big market and, um, you know, sort of the FDA's um, handling of this class is going to have a huge impact on the way that atopic dermatitis is going to be treated moving forward. And, and it seems like based on this, that, you know, jack inhibitors are probably going to be pushed towards the, the back uh, of the line, which, um, you know, will obviously impact their use quite a bit. Um, I know there's a lot of other angles. I'm probably forgetting a few. I know tick two is one and obviously European, anything stand out to, to you here? Well, I, I think you've absolutely covered most of most of the important angles there. Yeah, I was going to mention just for a bit of context. Um, I'm not entirely sure if the EU guidance um, is official yet. I think it was made as a recommendation maybe a month or so ago. Um, but there's a, a similar outlook from the EMA um, in terms of sort of pushing back. And I think this relates specifically to Zeljans in the EU about pushing um, the drug back more as a kind of a last line therapy. And I seem to remember that during their, their second quarter earnings uh, call, Pfizer um, kind of suggested that they, they didn't really think it was going to have um, a, a massive impact on the performance of Zeljans. That is partly because um, it's not nearly uh, you know, used nearly as widely in the in the EU to treat rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, Illumion, Elo Lilly's drug, is the, the product which is used more, more frequently. And then obviously, as you mentioned, Rinvoc has kind of been launched in both the US and Europe and is sort of widely seen by, by rheumatologists, I think, as a superior JAK inhibitor. Obviously, that's, you know, kind of based on the efficacy. Um, AbbVie would also argue that you know the, the the safety profile needs to needs to be considered that way as well, and they've argued that, that that their drug is more selective. You know, as you alluded to, one of the key takeaways from the FDA's disclosure this week is the fact that they are lumping you know these products all in together and saying until you can prove otherwise, until you can show us data which suggests um, you know that they don't have the same side effects, we're going to treat them the same way. So. Certainly agree. It's going to be a, a really kind of interesting one to watch. Um, you mentioned Abby were hit hardest. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that peak sales of Rinvoc, um, you know, forecast to be maybe nine or ten billion dollars. Um, and yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. I think this is something you know I'm going to try and reach out 
try and gauge some opinion on in the next couple of days. I think it's going to be really interesting, obviously, how rheumatologists react to this, um, these recommendations by the FDA, but also, um, you know, how dermatologists uh, react to it. Um, Illumion is already approved in the EU for atopic dermatitis, but I, I believe that it hasn't, it's not being used widely at the moment. Um, but if you speak to dermatology key opinion leaders, um, you know, certainly don't think that drugs like Rinvoc are going to come in and completely replace Dupixent, um, which it must be said it is not only efficacious, but is, you know, is deemed to be a really safe drug as well. But, you know, there is there is certainly, um, you know, if you speak to key opinion leaders, there's certainly a lot of interest in using these JAK inhibitors um, to treat patients because they're, they're, they're oral products. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see in the context of that how um, the FDA's um, view that at the moment the JAK inhibitors should be considered, you know, similar or same rather than different, how that's going to pan out you know, with potential use in the dermatitis market. Uh, moving on, um, Eli Lilly and Boehring Ingelheim's SGLT2 inhibitor, Jardiance, stole the show at the recent European Society of Cardiology Congress, where detailed results from the phase three EMPRA preserved study were presented and were simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Headline data from this study show that Jardiance reduced a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure by a significant 21% versus placebo in patients with preserved ejection fraction, regardless of their diabetes status. And these data are particularly encouraging against the backdrop um, of uh, a catalogue of prior setbacks in the underserved heart failure with preserved ejection fraction space. And relative to the uh, the, the, the risk um, reduction achieved by Novartis's Entresto, which is a 13% decline. And Entresto, of course, is the only other approved um, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction therapy. Um, commentary out of the Congress from leading experts suggests that these data are practice changing, uh, which is backed up from a poll we fielded to cardiologists this week and we published that analysis online today. So if you're interested in that, please uh, make sure that you go and check it out. Michael, you know, what, what was your kind of take on these data? And I know that you're, um, you're due to speak to a key opinion leader to, to kind of get some more expert opinion in, in the next couple of days. Yeah. <clears throat> so in my in my non-expert opinion, and, and from the uh, you know the other people we've sort of um, talked to in the past, and, and key opinion le key opinion leaders we've we've sort of talked to after you know some of the top line data was out there, it sounds like this is a big hit. You know, I mean, like the the I think you ran the poll that showed that ninety five percent of physicians surveyed said this would be practice changing, which. I mean, that right there sort of speaks for itself. I don't, I don't know how often you can get 95% people, 95 of people in the world to agree on anything these days. So, you know, that, that speaks to the fact that this is, it's an impressive data set. Um, the 21% the headline sort of reduction in the composite endpoint is, uh, you know, within the bound of the 20% to 30% uh, that a KOL told me 
months ago is going to be what he would like to see when these data are, are fully unveiled. Uh, you know, if you're going to dig down into it and try and find some points of, of criticism, you know, the one I would say modest critique of, of Jardiant's performance is if you break down the individual components of the composite endpoint, it was clearly very statistically significant on reducing hospitalizations due to heart failure, but it was it only showed a positive trend on the uh, the cardiovascular death, which obviously is a little bit harder than um, the hospitalization component. But still, I, I think just the, the overall efficacy clearly speaks to just how well this works, especially in an indication like HEFPEF, where just nothing has worked. You know, and Tresto is the only thing approved right now, and it was approved based on data where it did not hit the primary endpoint. So, you know, Jardiance is the first drug in all the decades, whatever, that the drugs have been sort of being developed for this indication. It is the first drug to hit the endpoint in a, in a phase three trial. And so people are going to be impressed by that. Um, and it'll probably, you know, mean more use, a broader use than Entresto. I know Entresto's label specifies, uh, it sort of coaxes physicians to use it more in, in people with reduced um, ejection fraction, um, you know, statuses, because that's where most of the efficacy was seen. Probably, you know, I guess we'll see, you know, we'll see what the label information and how it shakes out in the end. But it seems like you know, they broke down the um, the data by, I think, people with ejection fraction over 60, in between 60 and 50%, and then 50% below. And, uh, you know, it showed a benefit in all three of those groups. I know that once you get up to the higher uh, ejection fraction, meaning more preserved, it wasn't quite as impressive, but, you know, they still showed a, a benefit. So, you know, I, that would suggest just like, you know, somebody like me who doesn't really know what's going on and be like, oh, so SGLT2s are probably going to um, eat Entresto's lunch when it comes to, you know, everybody on the higher side of preserved ejection fraction. Probably not. You know, we're talking to the KOLs. It sounds like, you know, they're, first of all, Entresto probably isn't used a ton once you get up into the higher percentages. Also, it sounds like they're really interested in using these in combination. So um, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I think one question, I think the big question now really for Jardiance is how the Farxiga data, so that's the SGLT2 from AstraZeneca, which is also being tested in the same HEFPEF um, indication, how that data shakes out, how that compares with the Jardiance data set. So that, that'll be sort of the next that and obviously the, the label information will be the two next shoes to drop. And that will be, it'll be interesting to see because this is a huge market and there is a lot of patients who need this and that will translate into a lot of sales. So obviously a lot of interest will will be on it. Yeah, I mean, so far the, 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 those two SGLT2 inhibitors in particular, Jardiance and Farsiga, they, they've kind of mirrored each other in the various studies and different indications that they've been evaluated in so i think it was actually just um last month that um Jardiance was approved um in heart failure with uh, reduced ejection fraction which is an indication where farziga has been approved for 
I think it was approved maybe at the at the start of this year. So they do seem to to, to mirror each other. It will be interesting, obviously, to see if it's if it's if it's uh, you know if it's a class effect. If we see positive data from Farziga as well. Um, just to comment slightly more on on that poll data, we we ran a for background. We ran a a, a quick a sort of snap poll to um, I think it was about sixty cardiologists based in Europe and the US. Um, as you mentioned, Michael, overall, you know, the vast, vast majority think this is practice changing data. And I think that speaks to, um, you know, the historical lack of therapies. You know, this is viewed as, as a kind of a hard to treat patient population. And obviously, uh, you know, that thing that the issue with Entresto, where the data has just, I think, marginally missed the primary endpoint uh, in the phase three study that Novartis ran a couple of years ago. There is, you know, you know, breaking down that composite and looking at hospitalizations versus cardiovascular death and the risk reduction that Jardiance has shown against those different endpoints. There's definitely, based on on the feedback we had, there's a little bit of concern there. Um, I think that will act probably to 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 limit use of Jardiance more than if. If if the product had achieved you know statistical significance about against both of those individual you know parts of the primary endpoint, I think you know that would have been an absolute home run um, for this product uh, you know and just further enhanced you know the nature of the SGLT into SGLT two inhibitors which you know are, are, seem to be kind of you know delivering positive data in in any kind of study that they're evaluated in nowadays. Um, yeah, but you know that said, when the data was presented at ESC last month, you know I noted that the you know the lead investigator and some of the other KOLs who were commenting on the data, you know they really did you know emphasise that the the reduction in hospitalisations uh, is important. So I think overall, I think this you know this is this is going to be you know an important addition to the sort of treatment. Um, you know, treatment guidelines for cardiologists in that particular disease area. Um, who knows, you know, are we going to see a study that's looking at both of these classes in combination or both of these drugs in combination? Because the hope really is that you may get some kind of um, synergistic effect from using them together. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that kind of pans out over the next couple of years. Um, rounding out uh, this week's discussion, um, you know, COVID-19 vaccines have played a, a critical role in reshaping the pandemic over the course of the year to date. But as we enter the latter part of 2021, there's a new controversy surrounding the potential use of third dose booster shots. And this debate appears to have resulted this week in the FDA losing two of its most experienced officials with confirmation that Marion Gruber, who is director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines Research and Review, plans to retire next month. And Philip Kraus, who's the deputy director of the FDA's Centre for Biologics Evaluation and Research, is expected to leave the FDA the following month, according to an internal memo which was made public by the regulator earlier this week. And there's been much speculation that both of these departures have been spurred by the agency, having been put under pressure by the Biden administration, which has proposed rolling out COVID-19 vaccine booster shots by the end of September. 
Now, Michael, there's a lot of debate as to whether these booster shots are required at the moment. And I guess for context, authorities in the EU and the UK are, well, they certainly appear to be proceeding more cautiously than their um, counterparts in the US, planning only at present to give people with severely immunocompromised, uh, severely compromised immune systems a third vaccine dose in the next couple of months. What's your kind of take on, you know, what's happening at the moment um, in the States? Well, it seems to be sort of one of those situations which has come up, uh, unfortunately, rather frequently, it seems like, especially with this pandemic or in relation to this pandemic. It seems like, you know, the, the political conversation has sort of separated itself from the scientific conversation. And in that sense, it really puts a lot of pressure on FDA. And perhaps this obviously speaks to the reason that some of these officials are just like seemingly fed up with it. Um, and, you know, I know the Biden administration has talked about, you know, they're going to get these boosters like basically approved and FDA's sort of feeling like, well, actually that's our job. Um, and so, you know, it's just a, it's a tough spot for FDA to be in. And it comes at a time when, you know, they've got all sorts of other controversies surrounding them. Obviously, they don't have a permanent commissioner at the helm, which, you know, makes everything worse, probably. Uh, they got the Adyahelm controversy that is not going away probably too quickly here. Um, and so, you know, it just seems like a, a tough spot for FDA to be in at the moment. Um, and, and how they deal with it, I, you know, I, I don't really know. It, it seems like there just is a different uh, tone or tenor to the conversation here in the U.S. about boosters versus what you hear in Europe, which is, is sort of strange. Um, and I don't really have an explanation for why that is, other than perhaps um, the pharma companies have just a, a stronger voice here. I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that, yeah. um, you know. I mean, in terms of news that we've had in the last couple of days to, to provide a bit more context, you know, the FDA has said that it's going to, it's scheduled an ADCOM meeting um, to discuss the, it, it's Pfizer, well, Pfizer and Moderna have both actually submitted um, uh, dossiers now to the FDA about their proposed uh, booster shots, you know, sort of, you know, looking to, to secure uh, emergency use authorization for those. Um, the ADCOM meeting that's been scheduled for later this month, um, I, I believe, you know, is, is, is to discuss the Pfizer data, um, whether the Moderna um, data will be kind of factored into that now, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a difficult kind of issue to comment on because this political angle is sort of, you know, it kind of seems to be casting a, a shadow over proceedings. I mean, certainly, I, I think the, the one thing that everyone can probably agree on is that the data um, to support the use of, uh, you know, third booster shots is not definitive. You know, it's looking at kind of antibody titers and there's a lot, you know, lots of people, lots of scientists and experts will say there's other factors that need to be taken into account, um, you know, as as to whether we're seeing kind of breakthrough infections, um, you know, in, in people who've, who've just had two vaccines and, and what percentage of these go on to sort of cause, 
you know, severe illness or hospitalization. Um, as you mentioned, it, it certainly feels, you know, in this part of the world, in Europe, that, um, you know, the stance is very much that, that, that two shots of, a, of one of the vaccines, whether that's one of the messenger RNA or the AstraZeneca vaccine, that seems to do a, a very good job at preventing um, most people or the vast majority of people from, from having severe disease if they catch COVID or ending up in hospital. So that's one of the, one of the, the, the kind of uh, debates. And I guess the other debate uh, is, is whether, you know, countries that have been heavily vaccinated with two shots should, should be receiving a third shot before certain other countries in the world who are, you know, haven't been initially vaccinated to anywhere near the same degree um, have kind of gained, you know, access access to vaccines. So that's, there's a whole, you know, there's a multitude of different debates um, that we can be having around this. It's certainly going to be, you know, something to watch. And obviously we've spoken on previous podcasts about the sheer amount of revenues that are being generated, particularly by the messenger RNA vaccines. Um, and obviously, you know, whether or not, um, you know, these these boosters are used on a widespread basis is going to have, uh, you know, it's going to have an impact on, on revenues as well. What I thought was, was worth noting um, later, uh, earlier uh, last month, you know, we ran a, a poll to US infectious disease specialists. It was run, we filled it to 75. And, um, you know, the... The vast majority of respondents do advocate that booster vaccine shots, you know, should be used, you know, this fall, this winter, um, you know, but it was interesting that, you know, over half of the respondents said that this really needed to be limited to uh, elderly people and those who would be, uh, you know, defined as immunocompromised. Um so I wonder also, you know, are we entirely sure, you know, when the Biden administration is talking about rolling out these these boosters at the end of the month, are we sure, you know, who they're talking about? Are they talking about the whole population or are they talking about, you know, focusing on on certain cohorts of people who, who are at more risk of developing severe disease? And I think, you know, there's probably a little bit of confusion around the language as well, which is, you know, is just adding to you know, the, the overall mixed messages that we're getting on this subject.